Now, if you were here last Sunday, um, you'll have picked up on the fact that we're looking at what Proverbs says about work. And this week, we're going to look at what it has to say about the issue of money, of wealth. So Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Then chapter 27, verse 20. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Chapter 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. In chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Chapter 11, verse 7. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to God before we study it more closely together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks so directly and so clearly into our lives, although it was written so long ago. And Lord, we ask this evening that um, you would apply it directly to our lives, that you would have us open and receptive to what you would have to say to us about this issue of money. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, I wonder if there are many subjects that make us feel more uncomfortable than talking about money. Not all money. We're happy speaking about it in certain contexts. So, after our service this evening, if someone approaches you and asks you what you think of the few hundred million pounds that's about to be spent on Buckingham Palace, 
I guess you'll be happy enough to chat away about that. It's a, a reasonable thing to ask. It's been in the papers recently. Talking about money generally is fair game. But if, over coffee, someone approaches you and their opening gambit is, so what, what are you earning just now? What, what do you have in savings at the moment? What's in the bank account just now? Well, things might get a little bit more uncomfortable, don't you think? See, it's when money gets personal that the tension starts to ramp up. And it isn't just me that's noticed that. There was a program uh, on TV just this past week. I didn't actually see it. I just saw the advert. Um, It was called What Britain Earns. It's on Channel 4, I think, on Tuesday night. And the aim of the show in the advert was to lift the lid on the nation's salaries. It was an expose on what people working in various professions earn. And the way it was advertised was as a kind of voyeurism. It was a chance to find out what people of various professions earn without having to have that awkward conversation over a cup of coffee and ask them. In Britain, and maybe elsewhere, we're quite prudish when talking about our own money. It's probably one of our last taboos. But if you're a Christian that might not be your only problem when it comes to thinking about money. Because not only do we have that natural kind of prudishness or nervousness when talking about it, but we often get a bit muddled by what the Bible teaches about money. So combined with our kind of cultural baggage, our prudishness, perhaps we're under the impression that the Bible teaches that money is a bad thing, that it's inherently bad We hear people saying things like, money is the root of all evil. And we think that that sounds kind of like the sort of thing the Bible might say. And it all adds up to this impression that money is bad. That having money is bad. That money is a dirty word. But we'll see this evening that that isn't the tone that the author of the book of Proverbs strikes when he tells us about money. Remember that the theme of the book of Proverbs is how to be wise, how to live wisely. And this evening we're going to look at what Proverbs specifically has to say about the issue of money. And generally, spoiler alert, Proverbs is quite matter of fact when it comes to talking about money. Some people have it, some people don't. And for those who do, well, it can be a pretty good thing. Look with me, chapter 10 and verse 15 on your service sheet. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Now, we might misunderstand this on first reading. We might read morality into it some way. That's not really there in the text. All that's there is a recognition that money can be useful. It can be handy. It offers some security, some protection from the ups and downs of life. And in fact, the author goes on to show us that money can bring a degree of independence from influence, from control of others, from lenders, from banks. Chapter 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Now, we're culturally sensitive to these sorts of things in case you feel that these verses are condoning oppression somehow, they're condoning the oppression of people who have little money 
That isn't the case at all. That isn't the tone that, that Proverbs strikes. We see that in the next Proverb 22, verse 16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. The oppression of the poor is condemned in Proverbs as it is throughout the Bible. But in general, in Proverbs, and as is throughout um, the Bible, money itself and having money is not a bad thing. Now, you might disagree with me that that's what the rest of the Bible teaches, because we have those kind of things stuck in our head. Money is the root of all evil. But let's think about it for a second. See, you think somebody's kind of quoting a biblical kind of phrase when they say that, but it's a dreadful misquote. It's actually from 1 Timothy, and the verse is, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It isn't that money, this inanimate object, is itself bad. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Proverbs, and the Bible as a whole, are not anti-money. So, why am I starting with this pretty basic point this evening, you might ask yourself? Well, it's probably best that we face up to the fact that, comparatively, as a church, we at Chalmers are well off by the standards of the rest of the world and even by the standards of the rest of Scotland. Not all of us are very wealthy by any means. There are some of us who live pretty near the breadline. But in general, we live in an affluent part of a reasonably affluent city and there's no point pretending otherwise. So you might have arrived in church this evening and um, you've been given a service sheet as you came in the front door, sat down in your seat and you've wondered, wonder what we're looking at this evening opened the service sheet and felt your heart sink. Because you're so used to people being so negative about money that you're expecting yet another guilt trip. But the Bible isn't anti-money. Money is helpful to have. It's a gift from God. And it's something we should be thankful to God for if we have it. But while Proverbs isn't anti-money, that doesn't mean that everything's rosy when it comes to money in Proverbs. If anything, it's more complicated than that. We'll see that in our second point this evening. Money is morally neutral, but we are not. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I grew up in a place called Ayr, God's own country. It's a seaside town about 90... Excuse me, who laughed? It's a seaside town. It's about 90 miles away from here in the southwest. And when I was in primary school, um, the local police force, Strathclyde Police, went round some of the schools in the area, and they handed out special pens to the pupils. Now, that might not sound very exciting, and I'll be honest, our initial feeling wasn't particularly excited either, until we realized that there were pens that used invisible ink. Amazing. They were given out so that we could write our details on the frame of our bikes, so that if your bike's ever stolen, it can be identified by the police. The whole thing seemed pretty exciting. It felt like the sort of thing that James Bond would do if he rode around in a BMX instead of an Aston Martin. The difficulty with invisible ink is that it's invisible. So after you've written something, you can't see what it says. How do you find out what you've written? How do you see whatever you've scrawled on the side of your bike or your pal has scrawled on the side of your bike? Will you shine an ultraviolet light onto it? As soon as you do that, whatever you've written, whatever your friend's drawn, 
Though it's invisible in normal daylight, it's lit up like a Christmas tree. Now, we've established that money in Proverbs isn't spoken about as inherently evil. It isn't bad in itself. And if it was, if money was a bad thing, then the Bible's application to people like you and to me would be pretty straightforward, pretty black and white. All we'd have to do is get shot of it. We wouldn't have to think about how to handle it wisely. We wouldn't have to switch our brains on. We'd just have to give it all away as fast as we can. Now, that might be hard, but at least it'd be clear-cut. And if money was inherently evil, if in itself it's wrong, then if, if we don't have much of it, well, then it's not a spiritual issue for us, really, is it? We can just switch off for the next few minutes. But the Bible's teaching about money isn't that simple. Because instead of being an anti-money manifesto, Proverbs shows us that money acts like a UV light. It's a great diagnostic tool. Things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see are lit up by our attitude to money, like a UV light showing up in visible ink. Aspects of our own character, our own insecurities, Real darkness at times are shown up. They're lit up like a Christmas tree when we start to think about the issue of money. And ultimately, Proverbs shows us that being wise when it comes to money means recognizing that while money itself is morally neutral, we are not. So let's get the UV light out for a few minutes, shall we? The first trait or tendency that Proverbs reveals, you'll see on your service sheet, enough is never enough. Chapter 27, verse 20. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. John D. Rockefeller was an American business magnate. He was certainly the wealthiest man of his time, and he's often considered to be one of the wealthiest Americans to have ever lived. And at the peak of his wealth, he was asked by a journalist, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? When will you say stop? How much money is enough money? And his response was just a little bit more. Now, Rockefeller was right on point in describing the condition of the human heart, according to Proverbs, when it comes to money. Because no matter how much of it we have, or how little of it we have, we always want more. Now, for some of us, that might look like imagining or, or daydreaming about the lottery winner's lifestyle, the Rockefeller-type wealth. But that's probably a bit of a caricature for most of us. I suspect that most of us are more often tempted by something more attainable. Having just that little bit more disposable income at the end of the month. Being able to afford the 1.8 model rather than the 1.6 litre model. Being able to afford to upgrade. To upgrade our phone, our laptop, our tablet, our TV, anything that sits still for long enough to upgrade it. I'm not greedy, of course. All I want is a modest improvement in living standards. When I get that, when I get that next thing, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. But the writer of Proverbs sees that attitude, that tendency of the human heart 
for what it is, and he lays it out on the table for all to see. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. Enough is never quite enough. And we know that from our own experience, because this is always a moving target. Whenever we get that 1.8 litre model that we've been so craving for so long, oh, that 2 litre looks great. We get the upgrade, we get the latest iPhone or whatever it is, and it's only a matter of months before the next one is out, and the chase is on yet again. And the writer of Proverbs says that this problem, the insatiable heart, doesn't just stay confined to how we spend our money, but it can spill over into our working lives. So look with me at chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, where he says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, that's money, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Now, working hard is not a bad thing. We saw that last week. It's something the Bible encourages us to do. But notice that the author isn't denouncing your hard work. He isn't denouncing your diligence. He doesn't say, do not toil. He's picking apart your motivation for that hard work. Toiling to acquire wealth. And the author kind of lays out the fact that when we eventually get that wealth, that pay raise, whatever it happens to be, that the money will ultimately betray you. Look what he says, when your eyes light on it, when you finally get it, suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Money is such a fragile and unreliable thing to find your rest in. And wisdom says that money isn't bad. It's not inherently evil. But we have a real problem with it. And as proof of the fact that we aren't morally neutral when it comes to money, enough is never quite enough. But perhaps you're not sure about all of this because you're a driven professional person who just wants to do well for themselves. Maybe you're at school, maybe you're a student, and, well, this is the kind of thing you aspire to. You graduate, you move into a graduate scheme with a a company somewhere, you get a job that pays reasonably well, and you can start to afford the kind of lifestyle that comes with it. And if you want to make money, if that's what drives you, well, why shouldn't you make money? Who are you harming? Well, that's our next point this evening. See that in your service sheet as well. Number two, we put money in God's place. Chapter 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Now, you might remember that we looked at a proverb that's very, very similar to this one earlier on. And in fact, on your sheet, it's immediately below it. Chapter 10, verse 15. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. And if you were paying attention, which I really hope you were, you'll remember that I said that chapter 10, verse 15 showed us that money... Well, it can be a good thing. It offers a safety net in times of trouble. So why is it that I'm saying 10.15 is a good thing? Money is good. Money is helpful to have. And chapter 18, verse 11 is a warning. We'll read it again. Chapter 18, verse 11. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall, these three important words, in his 
imagination. See, chapter 10, verse 15, shows us how the world works and how we know the world to work. Having a bit of money can be handy. It can offer a safety net. So, for example, when the boiler breaks, when the car's on the blink, well, it can be handy to have a little bit of cash to pay the mechanic, to pay the, the, the guy to fix the boiler. But by chapter 18, that same money, those same savings, they're kind of divorced from the reality of how the world works. There's a disconnect between reality and the rich man's imagination. Now, of course, when the boiler's on the blink or the car breaks down, it's handy to have a buffer, it's handy to have a safety net. But it can't protect you from everything, can it? And we know that in our own experience. Money will not protect us from the ups and downs of life, from illness, from bereavement, from broken relationships. We know that it can't protect us from that stuff. Money's handy, but it has its limits. The problem with the rich man in chapter 18 is that he doesn't seem to have those limits in mind when he views this safety net, this wall around him. It's a high wall in his imagination. And in chapter 30, the author shows us that that kind of blindness, that kind of imagination can happen well, to any one of us. Read with me, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Isn't that a remarkable thing to pray? Neither too much nor too little. <laughs> How often have we ever prayed that we wouldn't have too much money? I suspect not very often. Well, why does he pray that? Well, he says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? His concern is that his money, well, it'll lead to him forgetting who God is forgetting who he is altogether, that his place of security, that his place of protection, well, it's no longer God. It's money. Now, again, we might think of that as being a bit of a caricature of what we're really like. We don't literally tend to find more comfort in checking our online Santander or Royal Bank of Scotland app to see what our current saving status is than reflecting on God's goodness to us. We don't find more comfort that way. But I suspect a lot of us who have been Christians for any length of time have seen this playing itself out. Many of us have friends who've walked away from the Christian faith, not because of great philosophical or moral disagreements with the teachings of the Bible, but as a slow step-by-step process where clambering a career ladder offers great financial rewards Toiling to gain wealth takes precedence over serving God and serving his people. And over time, church becomes less and less important. Work and promotion and the associated comfort that comes with it becomes more and more and more important. God's put on the back burner until eventually he's taken off the heat altogether. Money can very, very quickly become a replacement God in our own minds, without us even noticing it's happening. 
But notice that it isn't just having money that's an issue for the writer of Proverbs in chapter 30. He says that even not having money can be spiritually dangerous. The author gives the example of the person who's in poverty, resorting to theft, resorting to dishonesty. The overall thrust of what the writer's trying to say is that whether we have lots of it or whether we don't, money itself isn't the problem with money. All it does is shine a UV light on the invisible ink of our hearts, shows us where our priorities lie, where our weaknesses and our insecurities are. And very often it shows that we replace God as our source of security, as our protection, as our source of purpose, as our ultimate goal. We replace him with money, with stuff. The wise person sees that money is it's morally neutral. There's nothing wrong with it. But we are not. Now that's cheerful stuff. I bet you're glad you came along this evening to hear that. Because it sounds kind of like we're up the creek without a paddle when it comes to money. If we have it, well, that's an issue. If we don't have it, well, that's an issue. So what are we to do? Well, hopefully we'll see by the end of things that things aren't quite as hopeless as that in Proverbs. Because Proverbs doesn't just use money as a diagnostic tool to show us where our hearts really lie. It also shows us how God would have us behave when it comes to our money, how to be wise if we have any money. And that's what we're going to look at in our final point this evening. Keep your coins. God's, uh, God wants change. Now, as Christians, the Bible teaches that we are made right with God, not because of anything we do, not because of anything we give him, but because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. And that the moral imperatives of the Bible, the the, the moral changes that often mark the life of a Christian, they are a response to God's goodness and his grace towards us. And part of that new lifestyle that the Bible encourages us to walk in, once we've become a Christian, involves giving. It isn't a case of getting rid of money because money's bad, so we need to get shot of it as fast as we can. But it's an act of worship in the Bible. But we'll see this evening that Proverbs teaching on how we should give as Christians might be a bit of a sea change for some of us. So read with me chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, I suspect there aren't that many farmers in here this evening, so maybe aren't too familiar with first fruits. First fruits are literally what they say in the tin. It's the first fruits, the first harvest from your crop. And not only were they the first of what you would grow, the first fruits offering were to be the best of what you would grow. How do we know that? Well, because this first fruits idea is a thread that runs through the whole Bible. So, for example, in Exodus, we read that the best of the first fruits of your ground, the best of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. The best part of the first part of what you've harvested is to be given to God as an act of worship to him. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when it came to giving, you weren't giving God the leftovers the bit that you didn't really need as a bit of an afterthought. 
You were giving in a way that prioritized God, consciously and literally putting him first. And you were doing so in a way that actually affected your life, that might even sting a bit. Now, you might have noticed that the proverb says that if you give your first fruits to God, if you do this stuff, that your vats will be overflowing with wine. Again, I suspect most of us don't have vats of wine at home. But some of us may know of some Christian business people who have been very faithful to God and God has blessed their businesses and made them very wealthy. It can happen. It does happen. It's often a wonderful thing when it does. But we have to remember that the Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. And whether our vats are filled or not, if you have a vat at home, this first fruits principle still stands. Honoring God with your money does mean giving some of your money to him as an act of worship to God. Now, I want to ask you this evening, if you're a Christian and you've thought about giving, and it's maybe something you do regularly, do you have a first fruits mentality or a leftovers mentality? Honoring the Lord with your wealth in Proverbs means that it isn't to be an afterthought. Giving God what we have left at the end of the month when we've, we've kind of done what we wanted with the rest. See, giving the excess of our pay, of our incomings, away, the money that we have left over at the end of the month, well, it doesn't ask that much of us. It doesn't engage our hearts. And to be honest, quite often we can do it without even thinking. But the point of this first fruits principle in Proverbs, as through the Bible, is that God doesn't just want the spare coins left in the bottom of your pocket after you've had your fill with the rest. The point of giving in the Bible is that God wants change, a change in you, where ultimately he is your priority and not an afterthought. So what does this look like? Well, It'll look very different, I suspect, for most of us, depending maybe on whether you have lots of money or whether you don't, whether this is something you've thought about before or it's something you haven't. But generally, no matter what you earn, it means giving in a way that will actually affect you, in a way that you will notice. So it might be that it impinges on your social life. It might be that it restricts the regularity with which you can eat out. It might be that it restricts your choice of car or size of home. See, God's priority when it comes to our money isn't just that we give him a certain percentage of our salary, a certain percentage of our income. It isn't just a box-ticking exercise. It's an act of worship, and his concern is that we put him first. The wise person, the wise way to look at our own money is that it is God's And we honor the Lord with our wealth. But as we close, again, we have to ask the question, why? Why should we put him first? Why should I bother honoring him with my wealth? Why should I not just carry on the way I'm going just now? Well, I've spent quite a bit of time over the past few weeks studying Proverbs. And something I've come to notice is fairly clear just reading through it on a cursory level that 
the author very often focuses his attention on the here and now, on earthly things, on temporal things, on what practical wisdom looks like in day-to-day situations. But what I've been surprised about this past week in particular is quite how often the author takes a different tack when speaking about money than pretty much when speaking about any other issue. And his gaze tends to shift from the here and now towards eternity. More when talking about money than anything else, which is quite odd. It's quite striking, actually. So read chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So in modern parlance, you can't take it with you. What good will your bank balance do you when you stand, as we all will, face to face with the Lord? I suspect that his savings account, well, it'll look pretty feeble compared to the the guy who, or the Lord who made and owns everything. (coughs) It's pretty embarrassing, actually, when we look at it in those terms. In light of eternity, says the author of Proverbs, consider what is of ultimate importance. The wise person sees money for what it is. It's good. It's a blessing. But it's limited. It's temporal. And we see that really clearly when we consider our money in light of eternity. So rather than prioritizing money and wealth accumulation, the wise person prioritizes something that will last, something that is of ultimate importance. Righteousness, a right relationship with God, says the author, is what will save us from death. Now, the Bible tells us that by ourselves, none of us are right with God. Not even one. But that by the blood of Jesus, by his death in our place, we are saved from death and brought into an everlasting and right relationship with him. And when you see things in that context, when you see money on this eternal scale where God has saved you from darkness to light, from death to life, then giving him the first fruits of your money isn't something to be done through gritted teeth, isn't something to be done reluctantly or as some kind of act of penance or to try and earn a way into God's favor, but as an act of worship to the one who loves you, who has given you everything, even his son. Now that's the kind of change that God longs for from you not the spare coins at the bottom of your pocket, where you treasure him more than your money and therefore you're freed up to give, him, to give to him sacrificially. Now let's pray to him now. This is hard stuff. It really is. Let's pray to him now and ask for his help as we think about how to use our money in a wise way. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this book of Proverbs for how it is raw and it is real about the things of life. It shows us what it looks like to be practically wise. And Lord, there are few other issues where we are so acutely aware of our lack of wisdom than when it comes to money. We thank you for the material blessings that you've poured out upon us and we acknowledge you as the giver of good things. But Lord, forgive us for 
that twistedness of our hearts that so often turns that gift into something it isn't. We look to material comfort as our motivation, as our source of security, as our protection, as our God. Lord, help us to see money rightly as a good gift from you, yes, but as something that we hold on to with an open hand. That ultimately, when we stand before you, as we all will, that it will seem so feeble, so stupid to have prioritized storing up material stuff over prioritizing right relationship with you, service of you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep that mindset as we consider how to give our money to you, to your service, to gospel ministry. Help us to have the clarity of mind, the right perspective that enables us to give you our first fruits, to honor you with our wealth, even though that's uncomfortable. And instead of chasing money as our source of protection, our source of worth, help us to prioritize right relationship with you. Lord, we pray all of this in your precious name and for your sake. Amen.